This week on Writers Inc. I try to start every book with a plot outline. And I do. I mean, I, I write a plot outline. It's really high level. It's not, you know, really deep in depth. I don't do a synopsis or anything like that. But mostly what I'm doing that for is just so that I can see that I have a story and it tells me and gives me the confidence, you know, hey, you have a you have a story here. Let's get going now. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. J.D., how's it going? Oh, I've got a crazy week happening over here. Um, good things and, and, and bad things. I'm trying to knock my taxes out, which always suck. But like, you know, we're already into February and I haven't even opened that folder yet. And I've got like 10 emails from my accountant asking random things that I keep putting off. So I'm trying to tackle that. Um, but I, I just I did something very, something I didn't think I was going to do, but I just took Forsaken, my audiobook wide. Um, oh. through uh, through find away books yeah um so i i reached out you know there all this these issues have been going on with with audible and audible gate and, and everything so I, I reached out um to see if i could get it out of their exclusive um program because it, it had like another year and a half to go i think it, it ended one year from this coming november um before i would have been able to take it out and i, I wasn't sure if they were going to push back or not but i got an email back about a week later saying that it's it's no longer exclusive and yeah, I was, that was basically it. I'm like a form response. So I, I got all the files, uploaded them to find a way. Um, so I'm going to see how it goes. I've, I've never done that before with an audiobook. It's the only one that I actually own. All, all my other audiobooks are with um, recorded audio or recorded books um, is, is the company. So this is the only one I actually have the rights to myself. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I have uh, Three Story Method is through Find Away Voices on the audio distribution side. And you know, I get some nice checks that are non Amazon. They're not coming through uh, ACX. So uh, I, I think you're going to do well with that. Yeah, that's the thing because, you know, like sitting here doing my taxes, I'm looking at all my 1099s and a big chunk comes from Amazon. And that's a little scary. <laughs> you know, like having, having, hey, I, I like to diversify, you know, everything like, you know, in life, whether it's, you know, finances and, you know, like we do real estate and all these other things on the side. But, I, you know, I've got a little too much starting to build up in that particular pot. So I like the idea of, of breaking it up. Yeah. Um, I also had a conversation with my Facebook rep um, about the, the new iOS update. Oh, yeah. And, and, and honestly, after 40 minutes talking to the guy, I think I walked away more confused confused than I was going in. Oh, no. <laughs> um, he had me set up a business account, which I guess I didn't have before because my, my ad manager is just part of my normal Facebook account. And, right. Um, you know, like they've got all these different screens, you know, that, that I don't normally use, but he had me set up a business account. We migrated everything over. He told me that that was necessary in order for the pixels to be able to do this or do that. Um, a lot of this stuff was way over my head because other people have set it up. So I just kind of followed whatever steps he told me to do. Um, I'm seeing a little weirdness on that, on, on the Facebook side. My, my cost per click has dropped significantly. I've got ads that are running at like eight cents per, per click, which is you know really good. Um, but I'm not spending my, my full spend anymore, which is weird. Yeah. Normally whatever dollar amount I throw in there for a daily spend, you know, Facebook is not shy about taking every cent of it. Right. Um, and, and like in the last week or so they haven't been, it's been like maybe 60 to 70% of that budget. And it, it's a significant budget, you know, um, but that normally, you know, it's never played a, a role in it before. Um, so I'm guessing all these different things are, are tied together, but we're gonna have to kind of wait and see what, what happens. Um, I'm also noticing that they're putting my, my ads in front of a lot more people, um, in order to get the same number of clicks. So I'm, I'm getting exposure somewhere in the, the 100 to 150,000 range every day. Um, and, and, you know, the, the number of clicks I've gotten, it, they're not they're not rising on an exponential level. Like it, it's not going up to, to that same level. Um, so there's there's definite weirdness happening over there. I think they're trying to work it out. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at other avenues just in case. Was there? Did um, you talk at all or did he mention anything at all about Android users? Like, I know we're, we're putting a big focus on the iOS update, and I'm sure the iPhone is still a major market share, but that shouldn't affect people on Samsung, right? 
It, it shouldn't. Um, I mean, if I had to guess, uh, you know, the people behind the Android operating system might follow suit, you know, just to, to you know, because they, they did it, you know, like we're going to have to do it like that kind of thing. Um, but no, he, he didn't, he didn't go into that at all. They're, they're very, very tight lipped as far as discussing it. Um, like even our actual conversation, even though that's what the, the phone call was supposed to be about, you know, like he, he didn't really want to talk, talk about it specifically. Um, he just, he walked me through these changes said they would play a role in it. Um, I actually, I tried to get him on the podcast and I'm still working on that. Um, not necessarily him, but maybe somebody from his department that might be able to speak on this on a more general level. Um, I don't know if that's going to play out. They seem to just be shying away from just talking about it in, you know, at all yeah. um, publicly, um, which, you know, there are a lot of valid reasons for that. Hmm. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, and something happened over at uh, Amazon too, which was, was new. I, I got a notification. Um, that we're, we're current, we're allowed now to nominate books for Kindle deals. Um, and, and also nominate books for prime reading, oh. which is, which is new. So if you go into your dashboard and, you know, you know, they, they roll these things out. I don't know how, you know, who gets what, when, but, um, under my dashboard now I've got a place where I can actually nominate these and I can have two titles at any given time for Kindle deals and one for prime reading. Um, prime reading has been very good to me. Fourth monkey has been in there a number of different times. And, and every time the book is shot up into the top 100 on the Amazon side. Um, so, you know, that, that, that one's huge. Um, so we'll see where that goes, but I nominated a couple of books for that. Um, and it looks like it's a self-renewing thing. You can put your books in there and it'll automatically re-nominate them in 90 days if you don't get picked. Um, and it doesn't impact anything else as far as advertising or, uh, you know, countdown deals or anything else you might be running. So, so that was kind of cool. That is neat. Maybe that's what Jeff's, uh, working on now. He's stepping down to work on, on the KDP dashboard stuff. Maybe <laughs> yeah, he's got he's going to roll out a couple new programs. I, I've got a feeling he's going to be working on his tan. I think so. <laughs> yeah. What's going on in your world? Oh, uh, just a couple of reminders and some fun things. Uh, my buddy, I want to mention my buddy Donovan. He's uh, he was a, uh, a guy and he's an illustrator and author who I met years ago. And he lives in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he recently opened up a uh, a place there, a bookstore. And he's featuring a lot of independent uh, artists. And uh, he's, a, he's a pillar of the community. It's called Studio Moonfall. We'll have a link in the show notes. But uh, Donovan's a great guy, and, and it's a cool concept. And anytime we can support independently owned bookstores, I figure it's worth giving a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to see more of that pop up, especially as indie authors get more business savvy. I think they're, you know, I'm, I'm looking at new ways to distribute um, books all the time. I'm, I'm currently interviewing people right now to, to reach out, you know, on a, a full-time basis to just talk to bookstores and try and get my books in there. Um, you know, put, point those bookstores basically into the, you know, towards my distributors. Um, so I, I mean, we're, we're slowly, you're, I say we, but you know, indies in general or myself, like I'm just, I'm slowly turning into the a business model, very similar to a, a regular, you know, full size publisher. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hiring out those, those different pieces and, and bringing it into the fold. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, cool. I want to mention that a couple of reminders for folks, uh, the writer's ink survey, you want to complete that by, uh, the end of this month, the February 28th, 2021, and, uh, you're entered to win a one-on-one -on -one with JD. And uh, we also want to have a, uh, give everyone a reminder that the Career Author Summit happening in September in Nashville, uh, the installment plan ends on March 1st. So if you're interested and you want to make uh, payments instead of one lump payment, you can definitely do that. And uh, we, we hope to see you there. And then finally, just want to give a, a nice shout out to Kobo Writing Life, our sponsors. Uh, if you are publishing wide, Kobo, uh, Kobo's a must. You got to get over there, get your books loaded up direct, and then you can take advantages of all their promotional opportunities and have full control without any exclusivity. And that's over at KoboWritingLife.com. All right. Who's on today? Today we have an old friend of mine, Ann Charles. Ann Charles. Okay. Yeah. She was, uh, I met her, I want to say maybe 2010 or so. She was, she was part of a consortium of independent authors who were, uh, really doing sort of guerrilla marketing and innovative things at the time. This was uh, this was before BookBub. We we sort of created a BookBub before BookBub, uh, and was run by all the authors. and And we would uh, schedule events around it, and we would use KDP Select free days as a promotional tool. and And this was this was back when uh, your book would be free for five days, and then as soon as it came off the free list, it would port directly into the the paid list. the The sales rank would port directly over which is oh, kind of wow. crazy to think about that now, but uh, that's how it used to be. Um, so yeah, Anne's, Anne's a, a really neat, interesting person. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. All right. Well, here she is, Ann Charles. And I thought a good place to start with you would be 
to ask you your best memory of the Kindle Gold Rush days of the early 2010s. Oh, wow. That would be, it would have to be the book bub runs back then. Um, when we did a book bub run early on, you just climbed the charts like nobody's business and it didn't even have to be free. You know, although I did do free runs way back at the start and had amazing results for back then. So to me, it's, it's such, the game has gotten so much harder when it comes to marketing and promotion and getting out there above everything else, above the other, you know, authors, not that you want to be above, but just trying to get your book out there. It's so much tougher now than it used to be. Um, that first time I did the book bub run, the very first one, uh, you remember Amber Scott? Yes. She, she's the one who kind of got me going on that. She t she's always the rabbit and I was the turtle and she talked me into it. <laughs> and I remember the, the book bub hit and within two, a day, it was 40,000 plus, you know, books had been given away and we didn't give away books like that back then. So I thought, uh-oh, I either made a huge mistake or this is a really good thing, which it turned out to be a good thing. So that's kind of what I mean with the, you know, the book club. And I know you can still get that when you go free a lot of times now, but the follow through isn't near what it used to be. You know, the following yeah. sales. Yeah. I, I remember uh, we kind of first crossed paths probably in 2012 or 2013 when we were doing uh, free coordinated promotions. I think this might've even been before BookBub. And I can remember oh. in a particular promotion, um, I think I had like 34,000 downloads on a free book, which is kind of mind blowing today. And then right. I can remember when that book poured it over from the free charts to the, to the regular Amazon charts, it, the rank just instantly converted directly. Do you remember that? Like if you were at 5,000 yeah. in, in the free store, you would come back at 5,000 in the paid store. Oh, those were the good old days, weren't they? <laughs> Why you just, it went right over and you were, yeah, that was so nice then. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was um, you know, doing a little research uh, for the interview and I found a video from you at a conference in 2012 and you had said at that time that the best writing advice you ever gotten was to experiment. And I'm wondering if oh. that's still true or not. I think so, especially marketing. Uh, I still experiment all the time i'm still trying to do things you know i just read an article it was not for writers it was it was a business article about how uh things are going to shift again and change and if you aren't already thinking about how to market to the new you know way of thinking for so many now uh you know much more digital and and reaching out to people online more if you haven't already worked you know that into your business or thinking about how you're going to then you'll likely fall behind so it's had me just constantly thinking the last week about all the different things i get i need to try to do and see if it works you know i've i've, I've been doing facebook live videos now for i think i'm on week six can that be right five or six one a week where all the fans come and it's behind the scenes with Anne and we do one book, but then we'll talk about all books and it's really, it keeps growing and more and more get involved and it's getting, you know, taking hold. So things like that, I think are going to just become more and more, you know, and many, many authors did something like that, but usually for the younger crowd, I think. Um, but now I think it's expanding into all of us since everybody's been home and, you know, I think we're, we're getting used to doing much more online. Yeah. The older and generation. And you've always had sort of an innovative approach, I thought, to sort of branding and marketing. And uh, do you still do the 25er club? And can you maybe talk a little bit about what that is? I do. I still do it. Uh, we have a, a magnet and it's a big bumper size magnet, but we had a, design, had a graphic artist design a 25er club with really fun graphic on it that shows the different series. And so what it is, is anyone who reaches 25 books read or really close to it. We mail the um, 25er club magnet to them and there's an online Facebook group too they can join this 25er club. And it's just a place, it's it's kind of a stick this on your fridge, stick this on your file cabinet or wherever. You've read 25 of my books already and that's incredible. You know, to have a reader read that many of one author to me is, is humbling in many ways. So I wanted to reward them for putting so much time into my world, you know, and, and sharing them with me. 
Yeah. Do you imagine someday to have a, another level club, maybe a <laughs> 35 I do. I do. or a 40 or? <laughs> um, the, I'm, I'm finishing Deadwood 11 and Deadwood Mystery Series number 11, and that will be book 29 now. So we've discussed, do we have a 30 club or do we wait till 40? You know, I, I'm trying to decide which if you know i don't want to do every five milestones 25 seemed like a good milestone at the time you know so now it's well do we do 30 or 40 or what do we do wait till 50 but that's gonna be a long time yet i'm not that <laughs> fast of an author or a writer so yeah, yeah. um but it, it's really fun and i didn't know if readers would be into it or not but they really were and we still every newsletter i send out i have a little blurb on it about if you want to be part of the 25er club and we still get emails um, once a week, a lot of times for, for someone that's hit the 25er club and wants to be part of it now. And we had to, we'd ordered a, a big stock of, I think 250 magnets to start and we've had to reorder since and nice. do it, you know, to, to fill the club. So yeah, it's, it's, I like to do little things um, like that for the readers because, you know, we're in this together. It's a journey and it's fun to have little, you know, rewards or things along the way for for us i think as we keep going yeah is it uh, a safe assumption to make that deadwood's your favorite series well it's it's my most well-known and uh it's well liked so and i have a lot of fun it's one of my few that I'm trying to think. I don't think I think I only have one other where I'm in first person like this. You know, in Deadwood, I am Violet Parker. I'm in her head and only Violet Parker. So that's a lot of fun for me because it's it's the difference between third. You know, when you're more a little bit pulled back, whereas when I'm with Violet, I'm really with Violet on the page, and we think the whole time I'm writing that book, we're you know. With my kids, I'm still kind of violent. And then, you know, so it's it's a lot of fun to be in her head. She's so much, you know, the sa the sassiness, the the smart, you know, ass stuff, all that is so much fun to to do and to to be part of. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about about the series and Violet and the world itself. Okay, so that series is um well the series is now book eleven's coming out in May. Um and it starts with Violet way back in book one. And she is has just moved to Deadwood. She's a single mom. She's got two twins that are almost 10 and well, about nine and a half. And she, the father's never been part of the picture. He stepped out, you know, at right after conception, he was out. And she has been pretty much doing stuff on her own, although she's big, her family is a huge help. So it, it does kind of take the village, you know, mentality, take a village to raise kids. So she's moved up to Deadwood to start this new real estate career. She used to work at a car salesman or a car sales type of thing down in Rapid City. But she's up in Deadwood living with her aunt, trying this new reality career because she thought she'd get more time with her kids maybe, or at least have a freer schedule. Uh, and that's how it starts. And she's you know, struggling at the real estate job. She's not selling houses. Um, she's got so many months probation to sell a house. And then she's you know going to have to, she's going to get fired basically. So the pressure's on right out of the gate. And the big thing that's happening in Deadwood is little girls, little blonde girls are being, are, are disappearing. They don't know if they're being kidnapped or what's happening to them. And her daughter is a little blonde girl. So she is very concerned out of the gate of, wait a second, this is a small town, like 1200 people, you know, and, and the neighbor sister, neighbor town, is lead which is also maybe three thousand so these are big towns for little girls to be going missing this is scary you know it's not a big city type of thing it's more someone's taking little girls right off the street so we've got a problem so that's kind of how she gets involved with the mystery of who's doing this and and it just unfolds from there and it becomes it's a mix of mystery a lot of humor there's paranormal and that in the series keeps growing although book book calls that supernatural but paranormal and then, you know, a little bit of romance because I come from a romance background and I always love a little bit of romance in my stories. So that's there as well. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the start of the series in a nutshell. And it just keeps growing, you know, and I have kind of an overall series arc that I'm doing 
uh, and each book hits a different place through the series arc. So it's not just random and the repeat, it's not a repeat every book. The characters are growing, the situation's getting worse, you know, things are changing as we go through the series. And you have an interesting relationship with the actual city of Deadwood. Uh, could you talk about sort of your, your childhood, your summers, and sort of how that played into this series? Sure. Uh, well, my mom moved there and my stepfather, they moved when I was in just going into eighth grade. So between seventh and eighth grade, they moved there and I moved with them initially, but then I ended up going back to Ohio to finish school. So since that age, I have been going there and spending at least summers, if not holidays as well. And as much time as I can every year, I fell in love with the Black Hills right away. I mean, Ohio's wonderful and it was a small farm town, but I always craved kind of the West and the mountains and Ohio doesn't really have that in the Northeast, Northwest corner where I come from. So I fell in love with the hills and the history, all the mining and the mines that were up there. And when I was a kid, so long ago, you could still go into the mines. They weren't blocked off. They weren't, you know, the insurance wasn't such a thing. You know, we got to shut the mines down. There were old buildings galore. There were old, um, the, the leftover towns, the leftover mining stuff was all there. So I could explore all that and have so much fun with it. My parents uh, got a old beat up motorcycle and said, you know, as long as you stay on dirt roads, you can go wherever. And I was about 15 minutes <laughs> wow. time. And the Black Hills, it was mostly dirt roads. So except for the main drags into town. So that and as well as logging roads. So that allowed me to just go all day long on a tank of gas, you know, as far as I could go on a tank of gas and have fun and explore. So all that came to fruition when I got older. Oh, also my mom worked down on Main Street in Deadwood. And one of the things we could do is we could go downtown with her for the day. We lived about three miles out of town, but you couldn't stay in the place in her business with her. You had to be, you know, doing stuff for eight hours. So it's not a huge town but they do have a wonderful library and some museums and so i would go spend the day i would spend time in the library um i would go to the adams museum because it was a place that was free and air conditioned so as long as i wasn't screwing around in there the the, the folks running it were really wonderful and so i would so that I could cool off because it got hot in the summer. I would go in and stand in front of you know all the different exhibits and just read everything and take my time reading it. I was not in a rush and spend a couple hours there. So I really got into the history and learned so much as a kid and fell in love with the town. And when it came time and I was writing and I, my husband and I, we'd gone to visit my mom and I was pregnant um, with my second child. And I was, I was driving through, I was going up what we call Strawberry Hill there and thinking, what would it be like if a, you know, as a single mom trying to raise two kids here in this small town where the mine had just shut down in the next town over lead, how would you make a living? And if I was a real estate agent, how would that work? And all these places are supposedly haunted. What kind of ghosts would you run into? So that was kind of the birth of it all. And it got me going. And I still, my mom still lives there. And we still go every year, at least once a year. Um, but now we do stuff like we have a Deadwood fan party and we bring, you know, readers come in from all over and we have a big party weekend where we do book signings and we have guests that come to the party and talk to them and, and just all kinds of stuff, which is really fun. Yeah. So it's really become something. Yeah. It's, it's part of you. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. So I, I love that. The people of Deadwood and Lead and that the Northern Hills, all of that, Spearfish and Sturgis, they really um, adopted me and and embraced me, promoting me like nobody's business. They're wonderful, helping me find new readers. And um, I just, I feel so fortunate that this all worked out like it did. And, and they, I, I don't know, when I go there, I feel like I'm going home, even though it's kind of a second home. Yeah. Well, third, if you consider where I live now, so <laughs> one of my homes. And what was your, uh, what did you think of the HBO series? I haven't watched the last one yet, but I did watch the first, you know, the, the earlier ones. And I enjoyed it. Uh, having been, you know, kind of from there, it wasn't quite what, 
you know, what a picture because I, I wish they could have filmed it in the town. So they had the actual buildings would have been wonderful. But, you know, times have changed, of course, since way back when. Uh, I enjoyed the characters. I, as an author, I enjoyed the um, extra language, extra, you know, all the graphic stuff in it because it allows me more freedom to write what I want to write because if the HBO series, you know, is paving the way for fans and then they come to me, I'm a bit tamer than that, which is <laughs> not writing like elsewhere, right? <laughs> right, right. You don't want to go the other way. So it's, it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that series. Uh, I've never been there and I haven't seen the movie. I know um, after the show ended, uh, a lot of fans were upset because, as you mentioned, it wasn't filmed on location and they they dismantled the set wherever they, they shot that and that was sort of a big sticking point. So I haven't seen the movie yet, but the, the series itself, I agree, The uh, especially the dialogue. I thought the dialogue was so well written. It was, oh yeah, it's so snappy, it's so fast. I mean, and the actors were just amazing too. So they, they really brought that all to life. It was great. Yeah. I love that people got to see and, under, and learn about Deadwood, because um, that's been such a part of my life for so long. And then they came to Deadwood, you know, they went to visit Deadwood and fell in love with it too, even more so, which is what one of the things I wanted to do with this series was, you know, educate people, not educate, I don't like when people say that necessarily, but teach people that this is a real place and you should come see it because it's really fun and it's a wonderful place to visit. And the locals are really nice and, you know, bring more to Deadwood to help the town keep going in my own little way, whatever I could do. So that was one of my goals early on, as well as just make you laugh and forget about your own problems, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that Deadwood has sort of an arc to the series. Um, wh where are you at this point in your career? I know, and I know this changes for writers, but at this point in your career, where are you on the pantsing versus plotting spectrum? Well, I, you know, I try to start every book with a plot outline and I do, I mean, I, I write a plot outline. It's really high level. It's not, you know, really deep in depth. I don't do a synopsis or anything like that, but Mostly what I'm doing that for is just so that I can see that I have a story and it tells me and gives me the confidence, you know, hey, you have a you have a story here. Let's get going now. So and I say that because by the time I hit the first turning point on my plot that I'd written all out nicely, you know, I'm way off course. I'm doing something completely different. And then I just kind of go through and do a whole nother plot worksheet as I write and fill in what's really happening and where the plot is. And I always love to do that because then at the end I have the original and then I have the what really happened and I can look how far, you know, I varied and wow, I was gonna do that. Oh, we did something, you know, completely different over here. So I do it more to show myself that there's story there and those structures there. And then I just let, you know, the right side of my brain just go and see what comes. And, and a lot of times that's more exciting for me as an author because I don't know, you know, this this is where I think it's going to end and how we're going to end this one. But let's see what happens. And I think that comes across then on the page, the excitement I have instead of being, you know, plodding along, kind of bored with it. So I hope so anyway, that it comes across that way. But I do try to plot. And then I also keep track as I go. I do scene and sequel. So each chapter, I'll finish a chapter, then I'll say, okay, here's the next chapter. It's either a sequel and we're, here's the reaction dilemma and the next goal, or we're going to write another scene and here's the goal conflict disaster. And I, you know, plot that out per chapter. So that's why I don't think I'm a total pantser, but I do, you know, it's a, it's a mix. I'm somewhere in the middle, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, do you, are your days structured? Do you write at a certain time? Give us a sense of what your, your typical day might look like. My typical day. Um, well, to start I, with the lately, it's get up around eight, but I do have kids, you know, in a normal life, normal times, we're getting them up, getting them off to school. And then I kind of sit down at the computer at like, I don't know, eight-ish and, and get rolling. But I usually spend about a half an hour to an hour addressing emails and all that good stuff. 
And then I move into, okay, it's time to get writing. And that doesn't always mean I do get writing, but the goal is to get writing. I tend to be stronger when it comes to the sense of humor part of my stories and the laugh, you know, what I can add that way, the spark in, in, in that sort of area. In the morning, I don't know why, but my brain is, I think, funnier in the morning. <laughs> By afternoon, it's getting tired, but we still keep pushing on and doing stuff. Now, when school's in, I will have to go get the kids because um, my husband and I switch. He does morning routine. I do afternoon. So I'll go get the kids and I get to spend some time with them and find out how their day was. And we do, you know, dinner and then get back to work usually in the evening and try to write into the night as late as I can handle, you know, as long as my brain will keep working. And that kind of evening writing, I think of it more as the grind. It's not the clever, the wonderful, funny stuff that I think, oh, this is so marvelous. It's more, oh, this is crap. I just need to keep going and get this on the page so that tomorrow morning I can wake up and instead of seeing a blank page, I have stuff to edit, which, you know, my morning brain likes to do better. So that's kind of a typical day. During the thick of trying to get a book out, I will write two to 3,000 words a day. Some writers, that's a lot. For some writers, that's nothing. But for my brain, that's pretty... That's a lot. And partly that's because I go chapter by chapter and I'll write a chapter and I'll edit it and then I'll polish it. And by the time I'm finished with that chapter, it's pretty much done. Um, and I can set it aside and I actually send it off to a first draft crew, uh, about 12 people or so. And they'll go through that chapter then and see if they find any little edits, if there's any questions they had, something that I threw in there that they're like, what? This wasn't in the story at all. You know, what are you doing with an alien here? Which I don't have, but that's, you know. So I will go chapter by chapter with my first draft crew and they read along. It's, I think of it kindly of a weekly show for them. You know, they'll get two installments a week and, I, and sometimes that makes them very angry because <laughs> like, how can you leave me there? Hurry up. What are you doing on Facebook? Get back to work, you know? But by the time I hit the end of the book, all I have to do then is, is go through one time, tie threads, you know, that I left loose and polish it up a little bit and it's off to my editor. So that's kind of how my whole process works. And that's where I'm at right now. The book's at my editor, which is wonderful because now I can take a break. And in the last month I pushed hard uh, since the kids were home and I didn't have to go anywhere. I could do 12 hour days. And so I wrote, and for me, this is a lot, but I wrote 60,000 words in a month and paid the price physically. That was hard on me. Yeah. Mentally, that was hard on my family. <laughs> um, but the book's done now and, and off. And now I can take a little bit of a break as I get ready to go to the next one. You know what, what I'll be doing next. You know, you finish one book and it's like, yes. And then you go, but there's another to write now. So <laughs> let's start again. And I equate it to mountain climbing. You, you know, midpoint is the top of the mountain. You made it that far. Then you can go down the bottom. But then once you hit the valley, you're looking at your next peak going, all right, I got to I got to get going again. So that's all of that together kind of makes up my schedule. Yeah. OK, so um, it sounds as though then you you batch projects. So you might be working like hardcore or first drafting and then you might not be doing any drafting for a, a period of time. Do you ever right. work on multiple projects at once at the same, during the same time? I try to, I really want to be a multi, you know, author where I have, cause there's so many authors that I'm working on four books at once. And I think, wow, I would love to be able to do that because I think it would increase my, you know, production. But to be honest, I, I've tried that and I, my brain is just old and says, no, <laughs> we're doing one book at a time and we're going to stick here until we wrap this thing up. Now I can take this time um, and start something else while I'm waiting for edits to come back. But during the actual writing process, it's one at a time. So although, you know, so my husband and I are writing a series together, the Deadwood Undertaker series, which ties in with my main Deadwood series. And we do brainstorm together while I'm working on the other book. Um, and, and, but he's doing the first draft go through. He does, you know, that first writing. So we brainstorm it together and plot, and then he goes forth and, and works his magic 
while I'm still working on another project. So I can do that much, but to actually do two at once, it's no good. How did that uh, co-writing arrangement come together? Well, he's always been part of the process. Um, he's just kind of been, you know, doing IT and formatting and covers and all kinds of different stuff and brainstorming. He's always been part of that. From the very beginning with Violet, he was there with me figuring out what different characters could do. So it came to the point where in book nine in the Deadwood series, I was writing that and we were watching a show together and it was something about the old West. And they were talking about an undertaker. And I said, have you ever heard of a female undertaker before in the old West? Cause I hadn't. And he said, no, I don't think I had. So researched it a little bit, realized there weren't many. Um, but then I, either, I, we've been talking about the backstory of the whole Deadwood series, what happened, which is contemporary, but what happened back in the 1870s that leads up to the contemporary series and, you know, discussed this Deadwood Undertaker female would be awesome. That would be Violet's, you know, the same type of thing Violet is experiencing back then. And so it just kind of built from that. And he said, I said, I, I want to do this, but old West. So it's a Western, you know, with paranormal, but Western is intimidating for me. That is a lot of research. A lot. Anyone who writes history, history, whether nonfiction or fiction, you can't screw that up too much because people will only forgive so much. And then they're like, you don't know your history, get out of here. So there was going to need a lot of research and he loves to research this kind of stuff. He always said, he's been a big fan of Deadwood for um, the town since he's known me. And has always studied up on it. So he he said, I, I think I can do this. I think I can partner with you on this and we'll write it together. And I said, okay, let's try it. You know, we'll see how this goes. Just because I know, you know, writing together can be good or bad and we're married and we have children together and, you know, we remodeled house together, houses. So I think we can handle this, but we'll see, this will be a whole new kind of baby, you know, that we're, we're working on here. So we went for it and, and did it. And it's, you know, there's, there's times when each of us grit our teeth, you know, but now we drive our kids nuts because it's always <laughs> talking about this or talking about that care. We're either talking about one of my series or we're talking about that series together. And the kids are like, are these real people or not? First of all, you know, the, the conversation when they come in in the midst of something and it's, it's a tragic tale or something horrifying, um, my daughter especially will go, are these real people or are they from your minds? <laughs> so they know if they should be really concerned. But so now, yeah, we're working on um, book three and he's over the midpoint of book three in that series. And a lot of the fans have rolled over into it and accepted that as well. And as we keep building it's really tied into the main Deadwood series with certain characters who are in both because of the paranormal element. So it's, it's a lot of fun because you can know someone from the contemporary series, maybe they're a ghost or, you know, some supernatural type of creature or a person. And so then they're in the other series too. And so it brings that familiarity together and the fans seem to really, the readers seem to enjoy that. And we enjoy it with writing it. It makes it fun. Yeah, it sounds like a great creative connection, and um, and you're still married, so I guess it's working so far. I, I know. When we finished the first book, I said, we did it. We're still married. Yeah, <laughs> we don't hate each other, but and you learn a lot about each other even more. You know, we've been uh, 20 years now, and this writing books together has, has taught us new things, I think, about each other's personality. So, yeah, yeah it's constantly changing everything. Yeah, that's cool. Well, we started reminiscing about the good old days, so I figured a, a good way to kind of wrap it up would be um, to ask you your opinion on where do you think this crazy publishing industry is headed? Wow, that's tough. It's, you know, since the start, it's been a wild ride. Um, every year, at the end of the year, January-ish, I, I try to come up with a new marketing plan for the next year and think about where I'm going to go. And I'm amazed every year how things have changed so much. And you really have to shift your thinking. Um, you know, what worked last year wonderfully, you can't expect it to work even a year later. 
So, and I think now even more as we keep going into this shifting world that's becoming more and more online, more uh, digital, I know traditional publishers, you know, still sell a ton of print books. And I know a lot of readers tell me I still like to hold the print book. So I think print will continue. And maybe once everything is up and running again and industries are moving better, that I think that the print will continue. However, this has pushed more people to digital, it seems to me, it's just because they couldn't access print books. So they had to go digital. So it might open that up even more. As for the big players, you know, Amazon's been the big guy for so long, but being in the author community, and I'm sure you hear it too, there is a lot of rumbling about um, unhappiness, um, anger, all the different programs and things Amazon is doing. And a lot of authors are struggling with that, um, not just financially, but mentally accepting it and not wanting to accept it. So I kind of feel like, you know, how every industry has the big guy that comes up and becomes something, you know, the major player, it, they can only hold that position so long before everything's going to start changing. And I kind of wonder if we're going to have a shift in the next few years because of the programs going on with Amazon and authors just tired of it, just sick of it um, and wanting to move away. I don't know if you know, there's a whole beta program that Amazon is allowing readers to be beta readers. Basically, I think they call it or basically they can come in and edit your book and send the edits in. And if you don't make it, if you don't address them, Amazon can pull your book and no longer have it up for sale based on a reader or multiple readers editing. And that is just not working for many. And it wouldn't, I don't know that it would work for me. It's, it's feels, you know, most of us go through editing and by the time we put the book out, if there's an error or two, I mean, publishers, big publishers have errors or two, but to have what I've been watching come in from different authors, it's not spelling and grammar. It's a lot of it is sometimes personal attacks, uh, other times content. They feel, well, instead of saying, I put it on the floor, you should say, I dropped it on the floor. I mean, it's, it's edits like that that are crazy to come in. It changes the style of writing. So if this keeps up, I don't know. I think if a, a player came in and a vendor that said, Hey, I have this new thing. We've built marketing. We'll publish your book over here. We won't play these games with you. And we've got an audience we've built. I think indies will start shifting because, you know, I, I think what started is indie helping Amazon grow so much. Now it feels like they're kind of punishing the indies a little bit more. Um, maybe that's not the word, but it's not, it's a different relationship than what started with Amazon. And I'm hearing rumblings about that a lot. So we'll see, it's, it's exciting, it's full of change. I recommend that you keep up your other skills as well so that you, if you have to shift out or have an emergency plan, because who knows how things will go. But this book, this book business has never been safe and easy. You know, the gold rush days were wonderful, but even back then you knew this can't last. So I'm gonna have to, I have to keep thinking of the future and think in the long term how this is gonna go because it can't last. Sales like that can't last. All right, Ann Charles, formerly of Deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that was a real place. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Huh? What state is that even? And I, I, I've never uh, other than one of the, the Dakotas. TV show. I think South Dakota. Huh. I should know okay. that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna have to check this out. That that's really cool. I just I, I've seen the show, um, but I, I had no idea that that was a real place. Um, her, her talking about Bookbug back in the day, like that that brought back some memories because I I saw the the ranking things that you guys were talking about, like with my own books. You know, you'd, you'd have a Bookbub hit, and like immediately the book would just start flying up the charts, and and you'd see them in tandem, you know, on the on the the different charts, and you know it was so easy back then to to hit number one, and like now you could have a Bookbub, and like you don't necessarily even see a move in your rank the same day. Um, you know, like the next day you may see it, but it's just, I don't know what they're doing behind the scenes, but they're definitely trying to lessen that. 
Yeah, I think that was something that uh, BookBub would uh, really sort of made a, uh, a point of emphasis a few years ago and that they were not going to, or not, I'm sorry, Amazon, not BookBub. Amazon was not going to allow those big one-day spikes that you saw from services like BookBub. So I think it was Amazon who, who tampered the algorithm down so that you didn't get that spike the way you did back in the day. Oh, those bastards. <laughs> I've actually got one coming up. The, um, BookBub is doing a featured uh, new release for Caller's Game um, when it releases on February. Uh, the release day is February 22nd. I think the BookBub is running the day after. Um, but this is a, at a full price, so it's, the book is coming out at 9.97, and they're they're running this. So I've got no idea how that's going to impact things, but it's going out to their full thriller list, which I think is roughly around 2 million people. Nice. Nice. You yeah. have to let us know how that goes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, something uh, that Ann talked about uh you know, writing with her husband. I, I know your wife is a writer. Have you guys co-written anything? We haven't co-written anything, but but she's definitely my harshest critic. You know, I, I tend to put everything in front of her just to, to get her opinion on it. Um, she's not shy about uh, breaking out the red pen and, and crossing out the parts that don't work. Um, but typically when I write a book, I'll, I'll share the first chapter with her and, and let her read it. And, you know, she basically gives me the thumbs up or thumbs down as to whether it's it's worth pursuing and turning into a novel. Um, then at, after that, I, I lock myself in my office and kind of write the whole thing. And then she sees it, you know, at a, at a second draft level or so and, and goes through and, and weighs in. But, um, you know, her, her opinion is, is very valuable to me. Um, and, and the more authors I get to know, it seems like almost everybody's got somebody in their corner, you know, typically a spouse or a best friend or, or, or somebody really close to them that, that does that, that role. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, I, I don't know if I could co-write something with my wife. I mean, I could share my work with her, but I co-writing with her, I don't know. Yeah, there's a couple husband-wife teams out there that, that do really well. Um, I, I don't know that I'd be able to go back and forth like on the same book, um, but but who knows? We may try that someday. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought uh, it was also interesting she talked about working on multiple projects and how that was challenging for her. You, you, you've you been doing that, though, haven't you? I have, but it but it is a challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I tend to work on one book in the morning and another one in the afternoons, um, and I'm able to break that up. You know, I take lunch in between, and I and I physically you know break up the, the two different time frames. Um, I know a lot of people that switch places in their their house or their office. You know, they work on one project at one spot and the other project at another, and that seems to help. Um, where where I have trouble with it is you know I, I go for a run every day, and I use that time to you know to plot out what I'm going to write the next day. Um, so if I've got two different books that are competing for that that time during the run, that that seems to be very problematic for me. Um, what I am able to do fairly fairly well is you know like work on a, a first draft in the morning and work on a totally separate book in the afternoon from an editing standpoint or cleanup or uh, or polishing or or even even plotting something totally different out. Like I'm able to do that. Um, but if I had to sit down and, and write like one you know, fresh story in the morning and a totally different fresh story in the afternoon, I I don't know that I could do that. Um, and, and also my, my brain just doesn't work quite as well in the afternoon. Like I, I tend to get better words in, in the morning. So you know, I, I tend to juggle pro, you know, projects that way. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, everybody's everybody's different, though. Um, I, I noticed, I mean, she said she writes, edits, and polishes each chapter before she really moves forward and, and even shares it with her beta readers. Um, you know, that's something that Koontz does. He's, he's told me that before. He starts his day by, by going over whatever he wrote the previous day and cleaning it up. And, you know, when he hits the bottom of that chapter, he starts the next one and then just keeps going. Um, but he, he's typically, when he, you know, finishes up the book in that process, he's done. He doesn't go back for a rewrite or anything. He's, he's finished it because he, he polished, you know, his previous work uh, at the at the start of each day so that that tends to work for a lot of people and i've been trying that as well for the last couple of books and it seems to if anything it puts me in the right frame of mind just to go back and review what i wrote the previous day and, and clean it up a little bit and then just kind of keep going um but that that seems to work for some people as well yeah and i think too i, I don't know if you feel like feel this way but i mean at this point i i, I lost track of how many words i've published but like I, I feel like my first drafts are a whole lot better than they you than they were five or 10 years ago. And, and so like the, the revision process isn't nearly as intense as it used to be. No, it, it definitely gets easier. I mean, it's just like anything else with practice, you get, you get better and better at it. I mean, I, I work with so many mentoring clients where I get thrown back into that first draft, you know, like I, I'm on, I don't even know what draft I'm on as far as my own books at this point, how many I've written. Um, but you know, I, I've seen so many first drafts from, from new authors with those same problems and I have to kind of walk them through that. So that kind of keeps me, keeps me humble at least. And it keeps me, you know, in, in that frame of mind. Um, but it, it definitely gets easier. I mean, I, I can pound out an entire novel now inside of a couple of months without much 
difficulty and 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 not a whole lot of rewriting. I mean, for the most part, when I go back, it's it's cleaning up, you know, punctuation and and fixing grammatical errors and and you know autocorrect problems and and things along those lines. But you know, very little as far as significant you know rewrites. I'm not moving paragraphs around or chopping stuff off or adding a lot of text. It's you know, for the most part, it's pretty tight. The you know, straight off the the keyboard the first time. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking to Anne. She's uh, she's charming and intelligent, and has been in the game for a while, and and really really has a good understanding of her readership and and, and what they want. I thought her twenty five club was a really neat idea, and sounds like that would be a, uh, a really fun thing if you were one of her readers. Yeah, I'll book book twenty five. Let's see if we get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So right. we've got an interesting guest coming up next week. Yeah, I think uh, you snagged this, so I, you need to make the announcement. <laughs> so I, I've been reading a, a lot of memoirs lately, which is something I didn't do before. I, I tended to stick to, to fiction books, but Patterson had, had actually suggested that I read some memoirs, um, mainly because it, he felt it would help me get into the, the heads of other characters and just you know basically dig into other people's lives and, and just help me with character development. Um, one of the ones that he suggested to me was uh, Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Um, for a couple of different reasons, Ma- Matthew McConaughey actually reads the audiobook to you, so you know it's kind of him telling you that his his life story. Um, but there's a particular scene in the book where he's talking about Dazed and Confused, you know, his, his first major role, and you know he you've got your you've got his inner dialogue. So he's basically standing there on set. It was supposed to be a very small role. Um, the director asked him to do something, and and he basically goes through his this inner monologue where he he becomes the character it's it's really hard to explain without actually you know reading it or, or hearing what's going on in his head but it, it's not Matthew McConaughey playing this character he literally becomes this character and hearing that that inner dialogue is, is key to, to understanding how he does that and the reason Patterson had brought that up to me is because it's very similar when you're writing when you find a character's voice you know all of a sudden you're not really writing this character it's almost like you're channeling you know something that's happening and, and it's just kind of passing through you um, so that that book in general it, it just really resonated with me. So I, I reached out um, and Matthew McConaughey said yes. So <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. Uh, that that's going to be um, next week in, in, in the regular rotation. Uh, um, you can you can expect to hear that. Uh, I've also read Green Lights and um, honestly, like it's one of the we'll talk more about this next week. It's one of the best memoirs I've, I've ever read. And I, I, that's not because he's a celebrity or, or a Hollywood actor, but because it's extremely well-written and I'm, it's going to be fun talking about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and he did this without a ghostwriter too. And that, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have him on the podcast is because he, he, he wrote this book, you know, a hundred percent all by himself. And it, it's, it's fantastic. Definitely. So uh, gather your popcorn and your treats uh, for next Monday and gather around the old podcast and, uh, we're gonna we'll be bringing Matthew McConaughey to you. Yes, sir. So to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.